This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Jackie. Wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. Get me back my It's alive, it's alive, it's alive. They all Coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, Something is moving in the fog. Who's there? Something not quite human. Who is that? In Halloween, John Carpenter created a night of absolute fear. Now, he has conjured an evil so intense, not even the dawn can drive it away. The Frog, a study in unrelenting terror. Rated R. Now playing at a Fog Showcase Theater near you. Alrighty, folks, welcome once again to Cinema Degeneration. This is the John Carpenter Appreciation Month. This is uh, show number two, and we are doing the 1980 release, The Fog. Written and directed by John Carpenter, written and produced by uh, Deborah Hill. And joining me this evening is Jesse Seitz, filmmaker and documentarian. How are we doing this evening? I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. Um, you know, trying to stave off, like, you know, everything getting dark at, like, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But, <laughs> you know, outside of that, it's it's been pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, it it, just, it turns into Gotham City around like two two thirty anymore, and I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I don't like that part of it. But you know, it it just means we're getting closer and closer to spring. So you know, every day just getting a little closer, <laughs> just just that much closer. And and I, it shouldn't surprise me anymore. But every year, I just like act appalled and shocked. You know that it's like dark outside, like in the afternoon. <laughs> so maybe one of these years, I'll just like finally let it sink in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm well into my 40s, so, you know, I, you'd think I'd be used to it by now, but I'm not. I, I, <laughs> I, I curse it every every year. And it's like, why is this happening? Oh, right, winter. Yeah, got it. Winter sucks. <laughs> <laughs> don't like, I just don't like the cold. I had somebody uh, the other day, I was in line to at Staples, and I was sitting there just rubbing my hands like, oh, you don't like the cold. You like the heat, huh? And I'm like, well, I don't like either, really. I'm like, but I... I <laughs> I dislike the cold a hell of a lot more than I dislike the heat. <laughs> You're like, neither. Let's just like have it be 75 all year round, please. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I'd, I'd vote for that. <laughs> but uh, yes, yes, a little, little, we digress a little bit. But you know, we're, we're getting old, folks. We, we're going to bitch about the weather a little bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. But The Fog, 1980s The Fog. Uh, I love the way this starts out. With the Edgar Allan Poe quote is is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream, and it's a perfect fucking beginning to this movie, and you know I 
I remember when I first saw this, when I first saw this as a young lad, I, when we, my mother rented it for me in the early 80s, I didn't like it. As a little kid, I did not like it. I saw it wasn't until I saw it again in probably the late 80s, 88, 89, I was, you know, 12, 13 years old. I saw it again and then it kind of clicked to me. It all of a sudden made sense. And I have to admit, as a red-blooded American male, I all of a sudden saw Adrian Barbeau in a completely different light. <laughs> I was just like, I'm all about Stevie Wayne. I, I was just like, she can read the phone book to me and I would be happy with it. <laughs> no, Stevie Wayne. I mean, yeah, she's like a great uh, jumping off point, that character uh, in discussing like this film, I think, because um, Adrian Barbeau, I mean, obviously she's like, still you know forever a babe right um oh, but absolutely, I think, yes yeah i mean she's just got this very unique amazing like vibe to her and i mean that's why she was clearly cast in a whole bunch of movies in the 80s you know but um i feel like there's something about the fog that really brought out the sexiness of her and, you know, it, it really highlighted her sexy voice and just like her charisma and her playfulness. And I found that to be like very striking because, um, you know, it's not too far off, like from when she filmed Creepshow. And of course, in Creepshow, she's like <laughs> ultra naggy, you know. Oh, yeah. Like, she she is. Uh, well, qu queen bitch is the best way to describe her <laughs> in, in, in Creepshow, I think. So she's not, you know, all that like super attractive in creep show because of her personality. But like with the fog, you see like this whole other side to her and you just like want to know more about that character. Right. I was like, I want to know Stevie's backstory. Like, you know, I want to like see what happens to her and her son. Cause she's just like out there, you know, pursuing a dream while she's like a single mom with a child you know and I mean it's like it's cool right it's like the super cool character that really draws you in and we really don't find out a terrible amount about her other than you know she decided to come there and like you know start the radio station in the lighthouse which who wouldn't you know but um yeah it's very very well written very well written I, I love I her love char character uh you know she is like assertive she is cool calm and collected you know except for the point where like her she believes her son is in danger and then you see the mom and her come out but she yeah. is super assertive super cool calm and collected super sexy she's got the sultry voice and it's nice to like it's, it's fun to watch her switch it on and off like she's talking on the phone to the weatherman to charles cyphers who is just like <laughs> infatuated with her because like who wouldn't be right you know you can't blame the man but at the same time like she switches on the radio voice when it's time you know when she's on the airwaves and the fact that she's a, a radio dj that whose radio station is located in a lighthouse that's just cool that's just a cool character so that i want to cool. know more about we needed an origin story for stevie wang i i know i i'm all here for that you know or um, it's, uh, yeah, she was wonderful. And it, it's just such a, like, there's a lot of very strong, interesting characters in the fog, which of course is what makes this such an intriguing like piece because 
you know, it's hard to really pinpoint like a main, main character because even the smaller sub characters like really like stand out and they sort of all kind of like convene right at the end. So, um, right. yeah, it's uh, but she's like a cool way to sort of like get things like going on the story and I think helps add, you know, there's almost like a bit of, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, like a bit of mystery you know, to this, a fantasy mystery type movie, which you don't always get from all of Carpenter's work. You know, like this is a little bit more um, in a weird way, like fairy tale-y, <laughs> you know? Oh, very um, much so. It starts out that way when uh, John Hauseman is telling, you know, as the old kind of sea captain is telling that story to all the kids on the beach. It starts off very much like an old wives tale or a fairy tale. Yeah. And I, I liked that element of it because I think it sort of stands unique in his catalog, you know, um, cause he didn't really get that way too much often, you know, I mean, he would go back to like dark thriller horror, which of course he was like, and still, you know, a master at, um, obviously, but like this one, it was sort of like, like I put this movie on like before I'm going to go to bed at night, you know, because it's like there's something very calming <laughs> and interesting like about it, you know, and familiar. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a cool piece, um, and and Stevie Wayne sets the tone. <laughs> she does, you know, and this was um, if I remember right, it was his. I mean, I know that Carpenter had done a handful of short films. But this was only, you know, with the exception of the Elvis TV movie and someone's watching me TV movie. This was, as, you know, I know for sure it was right after Halloween. So for going for something like Halloween, which at the time before we got into, you know, all the sequels and the mythos of Michael Myers, you know, was a straightforward slasher. This was so much more um, supernatural. Mm hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, it definitely. I, and I didn't think of it in that, those terms before either. But like, yeah, it is like a very, very supernatural like based like film. And, um, and that's probably just like him and Deborah just trying to like grow as artists, you know, and uh, if I'm remembering correctly, but you know, who knows where my source material was for this. So I might be misspeaking, but I believe that they were actually divorced or in the process of divorcing when the fog was made so it, it's kind of um interesting to think about that too you know because um, of course they continued like to work together you know and always had good things to say about each other um you know throughout the careers but um yeah it's like I've, I don't know, it, it kind of puts this, like, really interesting, like, importance, I guess, you know, like, on that film, because they were both really coming along, like, nicely in their careers, but I believe that it might have been the last one that they worked on as, like, an official couple, if I'm, if I'm remembering. Right, because I, I think they divorced somewhere between The Fog and Escape from New York. Like, mm -hmm. somewhere between those two, they went through a divorce, and they still managed to work together. Yeah. You know, so that says something. Yeah, but yeah, Stevie Wang or <clears throat> Stevie Wayne almost said Wang, which is <laughs> maybe a Freudian slip there. Uh, but Stevie is one of the main reasons to watch this, and Tom Atkins is as always is always a reason to watch any movie, no matter how small or large his part is. Tom Atkins is always a force to behold. He's the best. And, He's the best. <laughs> and his prowess as a as a, as a 
as a ladies man is uh cemented with this movie and Halloween 3 you know i think that's like the whole uh the memes that pop up everywhere like every time somebody says they don't like Halloween 3 tom atkins fucks that person's mother you know <laughs> <laughs> comes along i see that at least once a day and i just thought to myself you know there there's his his character uh, rick you know, as he's just driving down the road, drinking and driving again, just like in Halloween three, just drinking beers and driving down the road, you know, 1980s, it was just a, a looser time, but he picks up, uh, Elizabeth character, which is Jamie Lee Curtis's character, who is another great character that we don't really get to know a whole lot about. Like we get to know about, uh, her as, a, as an artist, you know, that she's, you know, uh, hitchhiking and she's you know an artist she's draw a drawer and a <clears throat> but like you know they they start that you know they're just driving down the road and she asks him straight up she's like can i ask you a weird question are you weird and he just goes yes i am and she's like thank god thank god you're weird the last guy i had was so normal it was disgusting and i just love exchanges like that you, you know uh it just seems so much more natural, like the dialogue and whatnot, and doesn't seem as like, it doesn't seem as scripted and as forced. Yes, I, I totally agree. And and they had great chemistry, like Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis, like just that couple, you know, the whole Nick Castle, Elizabeth, you know, like couple. It's like you want to like see them go on after this, you know. And so yet again, like, you know, you hit on already, but it's like, more characters you want to know about and you want to see the backstory you want to see them continue on you know after this um but yeah they just have this super adorable chemistry between them that um is completely endearing and um jamie lee curtis i just i love her in this role like specifically because she's just really playing it like super fun you know like you know, she's, like, obviously, like, a free woman, you know, she's out there doing her thing, just making her way, like, across the country, and, uh, but it comes off, like, very genuine and not, like, ditzy, like, a lot of times that those roles are sort of played is, like, oh, she's slutty or whatever, and it doesn't come off like that, it just comes off as, like, this very free person who's just, like, living in the moment, you know, right, and, right. um, and I just always thought that was a cool way to present it because like, you know, the hitchhiking babe is sort of a trope for movies back in that time, you know, but she plays it like really intelligently still. And which is, of course, is just a testament to Jamie Lee. I mean, she always does takes on her roles like that. Um, but, uh, it, it's great. And even though she's not like really the lead lead in it, she's still just bringing so much to that performance. And it's a role that I I may get lambasted for this, but I like her role as Elizabeth. I like her character much more than I do Laurie Strode, and oh. I know that might seem like sacrilege, but it just she seems like so much more of a fun character. Yes, you know, I, and I don't and I don't dislike you know Laurie Strode, but you know in the in the construct of things, you know, when you 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 got to eliminate certain characters and which ones are your favorites, you know, they got to fall in a certain line. And I, I like the Elizabeth character; she's just super fun, and her and Atkins together are just a great dynamic. But like I said, like I love it when they enter in together, just drinking and driving. They're like, here, you want a drink? Yeah, I'll have a drink. You know, no problem. And then the next day, they're just you know, there's no you know, getting to know you bullshit. There's no sex scene or nothing. It's just the next morning they're obviously post-coital and like 
talking about her artwork and, you know, he's flipping through it and he even says, I want that one. You know, he's taking a genuine interest in her artwork. It's not just a, oh, uh, you're still here, you know, (laughs) (laughs) like this was supposed to be a one night stand. She stays with him throughout the whole film and it doesn't, again, doesn't feel forced. Yeah, yeah, you get the sense that, you know, and just in terms of like the the dynamic between the characters that, you know, he's just like cool with her being there one day just as much as he is for like the rest of their lives, you know, it's just sort of like a relationship that sort of fell together. And it's very interesting. Um, and, and Tom Atkins is, is so charming and um, just great for this era of horror. <laughs> you know, I mean, right, like, no matter what he plays, it's just like. <laughs> Well, just like in once again, like in Creep Show, he plays a complete polar opposite character because he plays the asshole dad in that. Him and Adrian <laughs> Barbeau both playing unlikable characters, but they play their roles well. They they never half-ass a performance ever. Oh yeah, I mean, and he's just uh, he just had this quality to him um, that was just so perfect in that. And and we're very lucky that you know he took an interest in horror movies like during that time, yes. you know. <laughs> Yeah, as often as he ended up playing cops later on, we got a great body of work from him in horror movies. And uh, we just watched a movie with him called Trick um, a couple of days ago that was really, really good. That's on Hulu. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. That's a great, great role for a curmudgeon old uh, Tom Atkins to play. Oh, I have, I have not seen that yet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look that one up. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. It's not a great one, but he, he's great in it. Performance guaranteed. But let's go ahead and get into a little bit deeper into the story. We kind of talked a little bit about the characters, some of our favorite characters. You know, I mean, the the general uh, IMDb synopsis is very, very short. Is an unearthly fog rolls into a, a small coastal town exactly 100 years after a ship mysteriously sank in its waters. And that doesn't really give away too much, but we're going to be giving away everything. I mean, but 100 years ago, April 21st, you know, in 1880 at this point, uh, as John Hausman, the storyteller, tells it, that when the fog returns to Antonio Bay, so do the men return from the sea's bottom. And that's literally what happens. Uh, Hal Holbrook, who's also another uh, great actor, great character actor, and great classic uh, classical actor, also in Creepshow. So there's a lot of correlation between this and George Romero's Creepshow. I just kind of wondered if... Uh, you know, Romero saw how well this worked, and he's like, I'm going to pick my favorite people from this cast and drop them <laughs> into my movie. I mean, and who could blame him? But, oh, uh, absolutely. I I, uh, I completely like could see, you know, um, him kind of like pulling like that sort of like little move um, because, uh, you know, the fog really had, again, like that ability to like showcase the range like on those actors. And you get the sense that like, you know, they're all working very well off of each other and um, that's so important, like when you're casting a movie too, is that you want those actors to have like a great rapport off screen too. And so it also makes sense to like, you know, hey, if it's not broke, don't fix it, you know, and like to kind of like recast and re envision people because you know that they're going to pull like the best out of each other. Right, right. And another little, a little note that I had here was it was kind of interesting to see when they when we first see Hal Holbrook as Father Malone it almost kind of feels like he's already hiding something because he's already kind of drinking away some problems because he seems a little tipsy 
but his uh, his helper Bennett uh, is John Carpenter in a very very rare acting role, <laughs> probably the biggest role besides Body Bags um, that he had. I mean, he's totally uncredited, but I always notice that that is is John Carpenter playing Bennett, you know, and he's just a guy wanting to get paid. You know, want to get paid for his job before he leaves because he's the caretaker. He's like, hey, can we talk about my paycheck? And he's like, hey, why don't you just uh, come in at six tomorrow instead of four? And it's like, yeah, we know. He kind of said it without saying it, but you're not getting paid here, partner. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, the church not making good on their deals? The hell you say. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it, that's a fun again, like a really great like character development scene. And you know, this movie all throughout it really there are those peppered moments you know of you know these little character like glimpses you know and i think that um that is definitely one you really get a sense of father malone's like <laughs> character like you know basically telling the caretaker to like fuck off you know <laughs> <laughs> like we ain't paying you shit today partner well we'll pay you next what's that old uh, popeye phrase uh, gladly pay you tuesday for a hamburger today that, that's right. pretty much what he what he did. He's like he's like wimpy. He's like I just want a free hamburger. But <laughs> things start to break down at this point in the movie, and we're only you know a few minutes into the movie, and you can already get the idea that bad things are going to happen. You know, strange things start happening. The phones all start going off at one time. The power flickers on and off. The the uh, the gas station, the car lift, the car horns, everything starts going a little haywire. You know, and this is about the point where uh, Atkins picks up Jamie Lee hitchhiking, you know, and as they're driving, literally for just no reason. Well, I mean, there is a reason, you know, there, uh, there's these undead zombie pirate lepers, as I call them, <laughs> coming back from the dead. But, you know, it just makes their windows explode. And, like, let's face it, in reality, if you were hitchhiking and somebody picked you up and all the windows in their car car just, like, magically exploded... Wouldn't you tell that said person just to pull over and let you out? <laughs> like, I'm good, actually. Like, I'm going like, to get off this ride. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know what happened, even if it was just kids with pellet guns. Like, you know, somebody's got you marked, pal. I'm I'm going to tip the fuck out, stage left. She she just couldn't resist, you know, Tom Atkins, though. I mean, look at that mug. Like, <laughs> I uh, could not resist that man if, 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 you lay, if he laid on the charm. I I wouldn't be able to resist him. She's like, let's just see where but, this goes. Okay, broken windows, sure. Hey, you said you were weird, so. <laughs> okay, I guess, you know. But uh, I, I love that the first scene we'll really get with the, the not really the creatures, but the, the returning uh, characters, the uh, the pirates, I guess you could say. It was the, basically, as the story goes, you know, uh, the man Blake that was a rich man that a hundred years ago ha was in charge of a leper colony and wanted to move the colony to Antonio Bay. And, you know, as the story goes, they set a fire, you know, on the beach to lead them into the rocks so that their, their ship would deliberately crash. And that way they wouldn't have to house all these lepers and they could steal their cachet of gold because the man was very, very rich. So, you know, this is also a man of the cloth that was in, in charge of all this. It was Father Malone's uh, grandfather or, you know, his great-grandfather, I believe, in the, yeah, I think the gist I, of the story. Yeah, I think it was great-grandfather, yeah. But the first people that we see that encounters 
these you know resurrected uh, lepers uh, when the fog bank moves in are the three drunk fishermen which we get George Buck Flowers and he is <laughs> he's a great little character actor you know he's in was in so much stuff in so much John Carpenter stuff I namely uh, remember him from uh, Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolarama oh yeah and <laughs> Escape from New York and They Live. But you know, and then let's not face it. Uh, let's not uh, uh, let's not forget. He was also the man who wished cancer upon Reggie Panister and Wishmaster. <laughs> <laughs> Just a curmudgeonly old guy, you know. I use that word a lot, curmudgeonly. But there's really no other way to, you know, uh, to describe George Buck Flowers. But. I love the fact that, like, when the fog starts rolling in, these poor fishermen, they're just getting, you know, they're just drunk and fishing. They, it, ki- it kills the engine. They, they see, there's the only time we really see the pirate ship, which that must have been such an expensive shot to try to, 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 to get, and they use it just once, which to me was just absolutely ludicrous that they would have, like, had a pirate ship to get one shot of it. Like, you know, as a filmmaker myself... I just can't imagine the logistics of trying to get something like that done. I, and it makes me like kind of like wonder if um, that there wasn't something like to that. Like maybe originally you did see it much more, but like it was like an expensive prop favor that was like okay, but you just get it like one day at this price, or that maybe something like you know kind of like messed up with the ship and they couldn't like go back and film I, i'm just speculating here because it is like odd that you know you're centering everything around the fact that it's like these pirates and like the ship is not heavily featured and so i'm wondering if that was like a budget or like logistic nightmare <laughs> as a prop probably, <laughs> like probably an, both probably you know, both. both you know and so they were just like hey you just need to see it once we're fine you know <laughs> Right, right. They're just like, listen, it took us so long and so much trouble and money to get this one shot. We don't need another one, which I can I, I can understand. I've had logistics nightmares, which just trying to get a hot rod Trans Am on camera. So um, I'm all about that, you know. It gets, you know, yeah, and it, but it is very curious, and I, I didn't quite, like, think about that until, like, you pointed it out, but, like, you really should be, like, seeing that more in theory. <laughs> right. Like, it should have played more heavily, like, when they were showing some of the big, grandiose, wide panoramic shots of the fog banks rolling in. Like, they could have just fitted in there somehow, you know, rolling into the into the bay. But, you know, who knows? But we get that one great shot just before the pirate zombie lepers. I don't know really what to call them. You know, they're <laughs> ghosts. They're, they're like zombies, but they carry weapons and, they, and pirate swords and hooks. They mess yeah. What what are three, those things uh, really? Sailors up. Yeah, those hooks. I don't know. I don't know what to call them. I mean, you know. Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I, that's another one I didn't think about before with this movie. Like what the pirates are. I guess I kind of just like in my mind was like, oh, it's ghosts. But like when you think about it, it's like more than just a ghost, you know? Because <laughs> like they definitely like can physically like hurt you and like manifest and things like that so and yeah they do have like they're wielding these like weapons <laughs> and living in the fog i mean there's kind of like a lot going on there but that's probably like where they're just asking you to have suspension of disbelief like come on right. <laughs> i think they're just they're almost like uh, to me almost like demonic spirits in a way you know i, I but zombie like 
leopards demonic spirits so like if they don't get you they just touch you and you'll get leprosy and you're fucked anyway so you know it's a double-edged sword no pun intended <laughs> but I, I made a note here i go at least the zombie pirates are polite because they knock before they try to come into your house because like the the scene with atkins after uh him and jamie lee have sort of hooked up and they're just kind of laying around and, and thumbing through her her portfolio and whatnot of artworks they start knocking on the door, you know, and they're like, they're like, are they that polite? Why wouldn't they just like knock the door down? And like, it literally like Atkins is saved by the bell, you know, because they're only like powerful from midnight to one, you know, that's it. That's the only time that they're, they're, you know, as part of the story goes that they're the witching hour between midnight and one is when they have their power. Like he opens the door, the fog is gone. The creatures are gone, and he, he is literally saved by the fucking bell. Well, and, you, and you're just like, which leads to two important questions. You know, one, are they knocking on the door because uh, is there some sort of a vampiric quality to them? Like, do they have to be, like, invited into your space? Right? Just throwing that out there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd never even considered that. And uh, and two, okay, like I get that they can only be there in the witching hour, but similar to gremlins, I mean that's kind of a subjective thing. So it's like, what if their like biological clocks are set to like West Coast time? You know, like <laughs> you know, do they get like an extra hour? Like, are you fucked if they come during like daylight savings time? You know, <laughs> like <there's>... ooh, ooh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like what because like you know time is subjective right you know so right. yeah i have questions i have questions get john carpenter on the phone here <laughs> yeah well, i would love to i'd love to pick that man's mind about some of this stuff <laughs> we, we, we don't make enough money here at cinema degeneration to pay him for an interview <laughs> we're not being paid here at all what are you talking about we're being paid weekly very very weekly <laughs> very weekly yes uh, what's the, the next part? I, I, the next note I have here is when uh, Stevie Wayne's kid Andy finds, a, as I put it, finds a shiny on the beach. He finds a shiny as he's fishing. Which finds a shiny? I love that. <laughs> yeah, that was the note I had. Not that he found a gold coin because that's what he li- literally found. But he sees the gold <laughs> coin, and as the waves are washing o- over it, he turn it turns into a a board from the hull of the boat that sank. And which I think was called the Elizabeth Dane, because it says Dane on it. And you know, he he takes it home, and that's all that starts problems right there. You know, because it's the only time we actually see. I made a note. It's the only scene when he brings it home and he wakes Stevie up. You know, after she's been up all through the hours, the wee hours in the night and the morning, doing her uh, radio show. It's the only scene we see her with other people. Otherwise, she's kind of disembodied she's you know riding this whole thing out solo she's always in her tower in the lighthouse or driving around by herself or she's a disembodied voice on the radio that somebody else is listening to so really this is the only scene where we see her interact with another character besides the zombie pirates at the end of course but you know he shows it to her and she kind of instantly gets a weird vibe from it yeah which and when she takes it back to the, there's that totally weird scene that I don't get, but I love. When she brings it back, she sets it on, you know, a stack of her tapes and the top of her, you know, uh, lighthouse tower. And it starts just not bleeding, but it starts like oozing salt water. Yeah. It makes everything sh- spark and explode, but then everything 
you know, I didn't quite get that, but it's that kind of ethereal, supernatural kind of quality. You just need to to spend a little bit and just ride with it. Interpreted that like a little bit like, because I think that the, the pirates, you know, their end goal, you know, is to like get at Father Malone. And so sort of anyone else who kind of, comes in through there is like inconsequential you know i mean they'll they'll mess them up you know but you know they're trying to like you know really get their revenge and so how i kind of always loosely interpreted like like all of that is that um you know like the coin shifting into the wood or or the wood going into the coin you know like the shape shifting and the water leakage yes Um, it was like they were sort of setting like a trap almost and like that it wasn't intended for like stevie's son to pick it up you know like they were sort of like trying to leave like little like bait almost um oh yeah that's a good idea it's a good interpretation of it there yeah so they wouldn't like so if it wasn't like at it's like intended target it would sort of just dissipate um that's kind of how i worked it out in my head anyway You helped me work it out because I always kind of questioned that a little bit. I always kind of wondered what was the deal with that. I just figured it was just a way to work in a neat visual, but it might have been, you know, a little bit of both. The next part that I have that uh, that I have a note on is when they find the seagrass empty because Atkins' character is hell-bent on finding out what happened to him because, you know, his buddies were on this this, uh, ship. And the one guy that he runs into, I forgot the character's name that's on the docks. He's like, what are you, the guy's mother? And he's like, no, I'm a friend. That, like, right there tells you what kind of guy he is. Like, you know, he knows something's wrong. He's not just being overly concerned. He's being properly concerned. Because he's like, you know, I've been gotten drunk with these guys many a time. We've never gotten so shit-faced that we didn't come back. You know, we didn't come back to port. And I, I just like that angle of it. It tells you what kind of a stand-up guy Nick is, you know. And but when they find it, everything is messed up. The, you know, everything's waterlogged. You know, everything's broken. It shouldn't be the way it is. And then, of course, one of the, the fishermen is still in there, just hiding behind JB Lee. <laughs> I love it. It's this. It's, you know, you know that they were giving the guy that the, that was playing the corpse a cue. It's like, all right, just wait, just wait, and now just fall on top of her, and. Again, we're shown why Jamie Lee is known as like one of the ultimate reigning scream queens because she's got one of the best screams in the business. <laughs> you know, like when she screams and that body falls on her, you, you buy it. You you genuinely buy it. Um. Yeah, and you know, bringing up like this scene specifically brought up a point that I wanted to like kind of throw at you. This movie, it, I feel like it oddly mirrors Jaws in a lot of ways. Like, its beats are, like, very, very similar. I mean, of course, you have, like, the seaside town, you know, incurring some kind of, like, tragedy. But even just, like, sort of the way that they map out the fog, it just seems, like, very familiar to the plot of Jaws in this weird way, you know? And I think that, like, that fisherman scene, especially, like, when they, like, go onto that, like, boat, there's just, like a lot of pacing cues that remind me of the scene where like, of course, like the head rolls out. (laughs) Right. Right. And it's just, do you know what I'm saying? I know it's like a little like oddball, but it's like, it's not oddball because I made a note here that 
about Janet Lee's character, who is uh, also Jamie Lee Curtis's real life mother. Uh, she plays Mrs. Williams, who is, ki- you know, kind of in charge of the town at this hundred year, you know, anniversary. And it, it very much reminded me of the mayor of Amity mm-hmm. in Jaws. You know, like she's willing to sacrifice pretty much everything. You know, she's like, you know, everything's going wrong. They find a dead body. You know, the power's getting janky. Everything's kind of being a little weird. But she's willing to kind of go through with this celebration, this anniversary at any cost. Just like the the mayor of Amity is willing to keep the beaches open. So yeah. I found that correlation there uh, uh, pretty much right off the bat. And, and it's so interesting because I didn't really think about that until I sort of like revisited it and was like thinking about it for like this program, you know, and I was just like, yeah, this like, and, and you're totally right. Like the Jamie Lee, uh, or excuse me, Janet Lee, um, it is very much like the mayor, you know, and so that's kind of interesting. It's like, um, obviously the fog came, you know, several years after Jaws and Jaws was very, you know, popular, so I'm sure they saw it, you know. But uh, oh yeah, I'm I sure they they were. I'm sure they were aware. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, there was no avoiding that movie. So it's like I'm curious if it was like on purpose or if it was just like an internalized thing. Like maybe they had both seen it like a bunch of times, and that was just like what they were writing, or maybe it was meant to be like sort of like a nod to Jaws in a weird way. Again, John Carpenter, we're looking at you. We we need answers for this. Come on, buddy, we got questions. <laughs> we got we have questions. You have answers. <laughs> well, this is when we get the big scene of dis uh, of uh, exposition. I mean, where Father Malone is basically, you know, he is spitting some truth because he found his uh, great grandfather's old diary that basically is basically just a big confessional. That, you know, that they shun the leper colony, conspired to have the colony killed and steal their gold, using it to build their town. And so now we find out that this 100-year celebration, this is the point in the movie where, you know, they're honoring their town, you know, their uh, their council, you know, the the t- council members who were, were murderers. You know, the, 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 the reverend or the father, you know, was, his father was, you know, a, a conspirator to murder. And, you know... You know, he obviously had guilt over it. And I felt like, you know, before even Hal Holbrook's character, Malone, finds out about it, like, he's harboring some guilt. Like, there's something deep-rooted in his psyche. Like, he almost knows something is wrong. And I don't know if that was just part of Hal Holbrook's performance or if that was meant to be that way. But I kind of picked up on it right off the bat before he even finds the diary. No, you're right. He is um, a clearly very troubled person. And I don't think I had given that much, like, pause to consider. Because this is, like, one of those movies, you know, that you know, I've seen a lot, you know. And so after a while, certain things, like, you just don't, like, think about anymore. You know, because you saw him when you were young and you kept watching the movie. Right. Um, but you're you're right. He does have this, like weird like underlining like sense of dread before he really finds out like the real shit so it's like it's like okay well was that family just like cursed then you know and it was like sort of i don't know just like really bearing like those burdens you know like their forefathers it it is like a interesting like thing to think about you know like that he was sort of feeling this before he even knew right yeah that's what i that's the vibe i got like he was feeling it before it happened 
you know, but who knows? Again, John Carpenter, we're looking at you. Questions, answers. <laughs> the next note I have uh, is about a character actor that pops up in the this is Darwin Johnson, who uh, played uh, Napoleon in Assault on Precinct 13. He has a very, very small part. Has the coroner, Dr. Fibes, and I made a note, Dr. Fibes, which if you all don't know who the abominable Dr. Fibes is, <laughs> <laughs> you, you need to go and educate yourselves because <laughs> that is one of the, like the, the ultimate like Vincent Price series of films. Uh, Dr. Fibes, you know, was, uh, there was two of these, these great, great, great Vincent Price films, but I, I like that. There was a little bit of a wink and a nod, you know, and everybody in, in here had a name, you know, that was somewhat uh, synonymous with another character, you know, like Nick Castle, Dan O'Bannon, which was Charles Cypher's character. So, so everybody is kind of named after a movie character or uh, somebody involved in the movie industry. So I like that part. I like Darwin Johnston. He's a, he's a great actor. He plays a character completely unlike uh, Napoleon from Precinct 13. But he basically tells him, like, listen, this this guy, you know, like, he tells him the, the he tells Nick the story. He's like, remember when you found those kids that were fishing? And they got pulled under, and we found them a week week late. You know, he's like this guy has been under a month, and he's like, and I just saw him three days ago. But there's no way that he could be in the shape that he's in. So the coroner obviously knows something's wrong. And while they're discussing it, him and Atkins, we get a little kind of a, I call it the Michael Myers moment. I think they were kind of recreating that shot from the end of Halloween where Jamie Lee's in the foreground, Michael Myers mm -hmm. in the background, and he sits up. Mm -hmm. the, yeah, the Dick Back, the Dick Baxter character is basically turned into a walking corpse, and he grabs a knife. I think he was. I mean, he never quite gets to uh, Jamie Lee's character, but like you know, it, it, he reanimated, and he was the only one that did reanimate. So, oh, again, John Carpenter, I have questions. Like, why did why was he the only one that reanimated, and why did he only reanimate for fifteen seconds? Right, Just, yeah, because it, it doesn't go with, like, the rest of the, the plot. It, which kind of maybe goes back to, like, what we were, like, first discussing, and that, you know, maybe they were just really taking a lot of liberty with, like, the fairy tale approach with the story. And so they just introduced these, like, you know, borderline, like, symbolic, like, elements into it, you know, just to make it very, like apart from reality and that's why there's these like things that might seem like a little like you know, they don't make much sense when you're like analyzing the film but like as a whole it leads to this like totally like other space you know or maybe i'm being too generous and that there was more to that and they just like <laughs> were like no oh, no i think you nailed it i think you nailed it i think that might have been just just it you know and then we're just playing upon that supernatural aspect of it. And they're like, what if, what mm -hmm. if they did reanimate, you know, I think that would have been even a creeper way to like, uh, broaden the undead army was that would be to have everybody that they were killing coming back. Oh yeah. But that would have, that would have just ramped up the, <laughs> the creep factor. <laughs> but then, you know, the fog bank bank starts rolling in. Bad juju, you know it's ha you know what's coming because they 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 were just kind of getting a taste of death when the first fog bank rolled in. Well, now it, it's the the eve, it's the night of the hundred year celebration, and you just know. I mean, even if this is the first time you watch this movie, 
you just know bad shit's gonna happen. But we once again we get you know Dan uh, uh, Dan uh, or not uh, yeah Dan O'Ban and the, the weatherman Charles Cyphers. He's talking with uh, Stevie Wayne. She's trying to warn him. She's trying to warn him, but he's just so infatuated with her. He's not listening to the, he's not heeding her warning. So he gets it in the neck. Boom. Dead Dan, the weatherman is gone. And the, and once again, the polite zombie lepers knock, they knock before. So I, once again, I I think maybe there is something to it that, you know, they have to uh, somehow a door or a window has to be opened for them to be let in because when, um, uh, Mrs. Uh, Cobritz, I think is her name, the uh, the the nanny or the babysitter for oh, yeah. yeah for Andy. She has to open the door before. They, I mean, they're knocking. They're you know trying to knock the door down. But once they're in the house, you know all bets are off. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think you might be onto something. There's someone of a vampiric kind of quality that they have. You know that that they have to be invited in first. That they can't like just freely enter in. So maybe there is something there. Maybe they kind of borrowed a little bit of that for their uh, their mystical kind of mythos. <laughs> I like but, that. I like yeah. the idea of it. <laughs> you know, um, because they are sort of like they're not following any traditional rules like we've been like you know bringing up. And um, but that makes them creepy, right? Because like. If it's a first time view, you really don't know where they're going with it, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, it's like anything could really like happen. So it is cool that they sort of like built their own like weird little creature like with that, so to speak. Yeah, they're building their own mythos, and you know, I enjoy, I enjoy that. I like movies that don't play, uh, I guess you could say, by traditional rules. They kind of got their own rules. I like that. But now we got no power, no phones. The fog banks are rolling in. The only thing that has any power is Stevie Wayne's radio station. And she's trying her best to lead everybody. Because at this point, the fog banks are rolling in. People are dying left and right. Uh, Janet Lee and her assistant, Sandy, who's played by Nancy Loomis. Nancy uh, Loomis, horror yeah. veteran. Love her. I love oh, her. yeah. And I, I met her at uh, Cinema Wasteland. She was Aww. just a doll. She was just so amazing and so fun. But yeah, she she keeps telling her you're like you're you're annoying as hell. She's like, but you know, uh, she's like, I I agree with you. She's always just kind of her. She's Janet Lee's assistant, you know, so she's always constantly trying to keep her in check, and, <laughs> you know. But uh, you know, I I love the two characters. So they're in they're in their car, uh, trying to not so much escape town but escape the fog. You know, Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee are in his truck. With, with Andy at this point, trying to navigate the streets because the fog's rolling in from all directions. So I like the idea that, you know, the radio was the only means of communication that they had. You know, of course, this is the days before internet, the days before cell phones. So all that stuff would be off, but her old school, you know, generator is still running and running the radio station. So she's telling them, hey, you know, fog bank's rolling in this way. Can't turn down left down Main Street. The fog's rolling in. Go this way. You got to go to the church. It's the only place. And but you get the idea, you know. At least we know because we've seen this movie before. They're <laughs> kind of siphoning the siphoning the the remaining people off to the church because that's where they're going. They're going for Father Malone. I think they originally thought, you know, they were they even when they get to the church, 
they have the scene where they're trying to reason like, well, they're coming back for the six people, the six, you know, for six deaths, you know, to uh, pay for everything. They're, they're counting like how many people died? Well, there's the three on the boat there, you know, there's the weatherman, there's this, there's that. And I don't think it really matters. They're there for Father Malone. I, I don't think even if they had gotten their original six that they would have, you know, left. <laughs> they wouldn't have just let things go. <laughs> they're, not, they're not that kind of, they, they don't have that kind of reasoning, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, they're just like laughing because like they really don't, you know, they just have like, <laughs> they're very simplistic, you know. <laughs> right, right. They're just there for vengeance. And Miss Williams and Sandy, you know, uh, Janet Lee and Nancy Loomis, respectively, are all there, you know, they're, they're all trying to make a run for it. And I like the fact that, you know, they're panicking, but they're not freaking out. They're still at least trying uh, to to be reasonable, I guess is the best way to describe it. They're, they're not just complete full out in panic mode. And I, I like that all the characters are strong. Even the, the kid that plays uh, Andy, uh, Ty Mitchell, that plays little Andy. You know, he just watched uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, What's-Her-Name. I keep forgetting her character's name, Mrs. <laughs> Kobritz. You know, he just witnessed her get killed, and he's he's handling himself. So even, the, you know, the child actor, you know, is handling himself. The only person who's really not handling himself is Father Malone because he's just getting drunk. <laughs> he, he's still just there with a bottle of wine in his hand when he shows up. It, like, it's the one time you, you see Tom Atkins ever throw a bottle of booze. And not finish it. <laughs> Which is pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> now, I gotta ask, what do, you, what do you think about this finale that we have at the end here? Where we get, you know, they're, the, they're converging upon the church. They find the, the big, uh, you know, the big solid gold. that They find out that the gold had been reduced down and made into this huge crucifix that I don't know how, how, how uh, Hal Holbrook could have picked this thing up. It had to weigh twice as much as he did. It's made out of solid gold. That's where one part where my suspension of disbelief is just like, nope, I don't buy that. <laughs> He's such a tiny man. Um, I I really like the ending, honestly. Like, I think that it's, like, one of the more, like, solid horror endings. But that could be said for, like, most of John Carpenter's work. Um, the dude really knows how to end a film. <laughs> um, and, and not a lot of people do. A lot of people, like completely fuck up the ending and it's hard because it's like where do you go with it you know do you wrap everything up in a neat little bow do you like leave it hanging and i think too many directors try to follow their own personal formula when it comes to endings whereas like john carpenter really had a good sense of story um him and deborah hill both had good sense of story um so they knew when to end a movie on a suspenseful note, they knew when to give it a conclusion, when to give it a stinger. And um, clearly they had both like mastered this like early on in their careers, you know? And so you can look at something like the fog and you're like, yeah, that's like the perfect ending. And um, yeah, I'm actually trying to think of a film of his where I didn't think that he like nailed, nailed the landing, but um, you know, uh, it's just one of his like stronger points, you know, um, him and Deborah Hill. I, I like to credit her too, of course, because like she wrote all of this like early stuff alongside him. But well, um, she was such a, an important part of his works. You mm-hmm. know, it was just like uh, like George Romero and Rubenstein. You know, they worked together on in, as a producing team on so much stuff. You know, with, with without her, there really was no him. 
Exactly. You know, they they were just such a great team together. And um, I'm glad that, uh, just as like a sidebar note, that, um, you know, she's finally getting that proper recognition, you know, because for a long time, it was really a John Carpenter show. <laughs> and, um, you know, meanwhile, you have this partner of his, you know, who's really throwing down just as much. And um, I feel like that that got lost for like a really long time. So it's cool. Yeah, that- for a couple of decades, it just seemed... Like not like she was totally for, forgotten, but just overlooked. And you know, it, it's it's nice at least, you know, nowadays it's it, people seem to be picking up on that a little bit more. Which, yeah, you know, as well they should have been all the time, all the while, you know. Yeah, this whole time, but yeah, it's like better late than like never, you know. And um, you know, she's that often one that like you know gets brought up when people. which is such a, you and I both know that this is like a dumb thing, you know, but when people are like, oh, well, women don't have that strong of a history and horror, you know, and you're just kind of like, okay, but like Deborah Hill or okay, but women kind of basically like invented the horror genre with like, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you know? So, right. you know, it, it's just like one of those like kind of things like where, um, yeah, Deborah Hill is like really responsible for like a lot equally responsible for a lot of the stuff that we love and um you know for people to just be like oh women they don't know what they're doing you're just like really because you are obsessed with her work you just don't realize it because <laughs> you can't right. read credits. <laughs> yeah nobody reads credits you know and i feel like a lot of people they may know who the director is if it's a prolific director you know people know who quentin tarantino is you know by sure. face or by name but like a lot of people don't pay attention to who the writers are or who the directors are or the producers are they usually pay attention to who's on the poster they're like oh bruce willis is in this it's a bruce willis movie but they don't realize there was 287 other people that worked on this movie to make it <laughs> make it happen and we they all really, know like, that pulled it through yeah you know and so it's um it, it's such an interesting uh a thing with it and um yeah sorry to to, uh, sidebar there but yeah she was a brilliant writer and she was a brilliant producer and um i think that they worked very well together and uh yeah my original point was they they could end something which is you know Mm -hmm. uh, is an art (laughs) well you know is i think it's bears mentioning that you know is because people often say as a joke that stephen king doesn't know how to end his books (laughs) John Carpenter was a complete opposite. He knew how to end his movies. He knew how to end them on the right note. I mean, like, we're talking about The Fog, but i got to mention Halloween once again. Stopping that movie on the point that he did of just Michael falling out the window, then all of a sudden he's gone, and just those couple of shots of the streets and the house just silent with just the sound of him breathing. They could have ended it so many different ways, but that was the right way to end that movie. Even if they had never made another Halloween movie, which they're up on, like, what, part 10, 11, 12 now? <laughs> Who knows? With two more coming Yeah, 37 to the third power with two more coming out. You know, not that I mind, because I love a lot of the sequels. Not all of them, but those movies, the, the subsequent sequels, didn't know how to end. <laughs> yes. The first movie, though, knew how to end. And I love the ending of this, and a lot of it uh, was shot uh, after they had a premiere. I, I did a little digging, a little bit of the trivia, is that a lot of the uh, the ending was reshot and added to have uh, Stevie fighting the the creatures in the fog off at the, at the lighthouse, 
which I can't imagine this film without that sequence. It's so chilling when she's trying to escape and climbing up that, you know, that angled roof to the top of the lighthouse and they're climbing up after her. That's, that's creepy shit. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm a full grown ass man, but that shit's creepy. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's absolutely like completely like unnerving and stuff. And uh, that's an interesting bit of trivia. I had actually never heard that before. Yeah. Like the, I think the movie, it came up, like they thought it was too short. Uh, you know, the test screenings was like, it was like 78, 80 minutes and they thought it was too short. So they re they shot some insert shots, some extra gore effects, and that the ending was beefed up quite a bit. I don't know how much of it was, but what little I was able to find out, you know, digging on the interwebs, you know. But I just thought that was an interesting tidbit that, you know, that movie almost didn't have that kind of ending. And it would not that not as would it wouldn't have been as impactful, I think, without it. Well, right, because it's like, you know, Stevie is us, obviously, you know, like almost like to a a very strong pointed, you know, uh, end. Because you know, as you mentioned before, she's not really interacting like with the other characters, you know. And so I think if it would have ended that way, it just would have kind of taken in like the because as she kind of gradually like gets drawn into the ending, you know, like we, the viewer do, because we're her, like we're experiencing right. the movie through her. And so, um, yeah, it would have completely, I, I'm trying to like envision it now, like with that alternate ending. And I just don't think it would have hit as hard. Yeah. Right. I mean, the ending we get is how Holbrook, you know, father Malone confronting Blake and his followers. He brings the cross to them as an offering. He's like, you know, he wants to pay for the sins of the father, so to speak. No pun intended, you know, but, but, you know, he's offering the gold back and Blake comes up, starts to take it, you know, and there's that big light show. It's just a supernatural David Copperfield light show. <laughs> and Tom Atkins comes and pulls it back, you know, Father Malone out of the way, you know, because I think Blake was probably getting ready to decapitate him, although that doesn't save Father Malone. We'll get to that part here just a little bit, <laughs> you know, but you know, you think everything's okay. You know, there's a big light show and then the fog has dissipated. Blake and his followers are gone. The, the lepers are gone. You know, the Stevie has been wounded, but she's, you know, going to be okay. She just took a little shot to the shoulder. She's okay. And she's safe. And it pretty much ends on a note of her saying, you know, to everybody to be safe, you know, and watch for the fog. And you really think everything is uh, going to get tied up in a nice little neat bow and everybody's okay. But then Father Malone is uh, in, in his church alone now that everybody else has left. And Blake shows him uh, a little visit, shows up for a little visit and decapitates him. And that's where we end. You know, I, I love that little bit of an ending. I, I think without that, like, that kind of bumper kind of ending, as I call it. You know, without it just showed that, you know, no matter what, uh, evil is never satiated. At least that's how I interpreted it. I, I, I would agree with you with that. You know, um, that that bloodlust is just out of control, <laughs> you know, and uh, it, it is a great. 
you know, I like it when horror movies end with like the prospect or like that this could keep going on forever, you know, or this could happen to you, you know, and um, yeah, it's it's always like really super fun when they go with that. I mean, who needs like solid conclusions and resolve? There's no fun. If you're not afraid to like go into your room at night for bed, you know, after watching something, then, then they've done it wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because if they vanquished evil, there's nothing to fear, but if the evil's still out there and there's a reason to, to hide under the covers and, you know, like as a little kid and when you turn your light off and you make that mad dash from, you know, <laughs> the, the light switch to the bed, you know, which Lord knows I've, uh, I've done many a many times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Yeah, but that's the end of our movie, unfortunately. Now, I will make one little mention of this because we did this on the Assault on Precinct 13 show the other night. There is a remake that was made in 2005 or 2006, which I did watch, which I did hate. (laughs) (laughs) And to be quite honest, I have nothing good to say about it. Uh, It was filled with everything that this movie is not. It was filled with bad effects. Uh, bad characters, bad acting, but it's a perfect example of, you know, we had this discussion the the last time we were talking, uh, we were talking on the season of The Witch Show, on a movie that's maybe a little less perfect you can remake, but a movie that's just this damn good and this phenomenal doesn't need a remake, so I'll leave it at that. I won't get off on my anti-remake territory, but you know, not sure if you feel the same way about the Fog remake, but I was not a fan. I actually, I, I just pulled it up on IMDb, like, as we're talking about it. I never watched the Fog remake. I never got around to it. Um, didn't sing to me. You know, imagine that. Not missing uh, anything. You're not and, missing uh, anything. But I looked up the director, and this is, like, this guy has, like, the craziest... Like most erratic uh, filmography, it's a. It was directed by Rupert Wainwright, who also directed Blank Check, that kids movie. <laughs> really. Directed Michael Jackson, his story <laughs> from 1995, <laughs> and also directed Stigmata, which I actually really love. Stigmata. <laughs> yeah, I like Stigmata. I dig that movie. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like the weirdest, it's like known for Stigmata, The Fog, Blank Check, and Michael Jackson's history. I'm like, wow, who is this man? Like, And I mean, now, he's going, you know? So. You can't can't say that he, the man doesn't have an eclectic mix of work. You can't say that, but... <laughs> yeah, it's like, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Oh, that's funny, that's funny. <laughs> but I get it, you know, I mean, it just, he looks like just on very, very, you know, first sight impressions. He just looks like somebody who was like a working director, you know what I'm saying? And then like, eventually got himself in a, t- a position where maybe he was taking more things that he was interested in. Because I just can't see Blank Check being anybody's like, you know, passion project. But <laughs> Yeah, that, that might have been, pay- been a paycheck movie. And that's, like, not even, like, relevant anymore. Like, a blank check. Like, that's not even a thing. Like, the whole premise of that movie. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Have me on next, and we will do a whole episode on blank check. And we'll analyze this. Right, right. Child's movie from the 90s. Um, but, um, we, got a thousand, we got a thousand other movies <laughs> we do before we ever get to blank check. <laughs> before we ever get to blank check. 
<laughs> when oh, will we? Uh, you know, November of never. That's when we'll get to blank check. <laughs> <laughs> it's what the people well, that, want. <laughs> that, the people want more blank check. I don't think those words have probably ever been spoken before today. <laughs> the people are clamoring for it. They want a blank check remake. They want the they want the remake. They want they want to understand it, you know, from <laughs> what was really going on behind the scenes. <laughs> they want Arrow or Synapse to release a uh, a comprehensive, you know, three disc version of it. <laughs> oh my god! If Arrow would release like Blank Check, I would actually now be the happiest person. Like I would never have a bad day ever again. <laughs> like, just... Right. Please give all your attention to this, like, ridiculous sub-Macaulay Culkin, like, kids movie. It'll be released on a double bill with Baby Geniuses. Yes! (laughs) Not Baby Geniuses 2, though, because fuck that movie. No, just kidding. The sequel just went too far. Yeah, Yeah. just took Super Baby baby Geniuses? No. No. Oh, gosh. That's too much. Ugh. Uh, well, that being said, uh, let's go ahead and get into our uh, final thoughts and reviews. And you've been on the show once before. Uh, I think you know how we do things around here. We usually uh, uh, give a rating on a scale from 1 to 10. And you are my guest, so I will let you go first. I mean, it's a it's a solid 9, in my opinion. Um, it's really just the kind of movie that you can just kind of keep going back to and you know even with like a few little structural flaws like here and there um you know it's not technically perfect i would say like it's it's weakest the reason i'm not giving it like a full 10 um i don't think that the cinematography is exceptional on it i think that the film is good despite it you know it had some good visual Mm. effects and everything like that but the cinematography is like pretty basic in this and a little like clunky like at times um i could agree with that yeah that's that's why i wouldn't give it like a perfect 10 but um it is uh a very enduring movie and i think that it's definitely one of john carpenter's like best i'd have to agree with Pretty much everything you just said. Uh, I'm coming in very similar. I'm coming in at a nine and a half. It's about as perfect as a movie can be. Like I said, the, some of the cinematography is a little bit clunky, you know, but, you know, and, and the effects aren't always phenomenal, you know, but it's masterful storytelling and the performances are what you really show up in this movie for. The, the performances, the characters are great. The story is great. And I love the, the supernatural elements to it. That isn't where it's not, he didn't just follow up Halloween with another slasher. You know, he mm-hmm. came up with another killer, you know, uh, not so faceless, but, you know, uh, still kind of, well, sort of faceless, but not nameless, you know, uh, I, I, I just love it. I, I love everything about it. Uh, there's, you know, like I said, the, the, and the, and the music, we got to mention the music, John Carpenter is one of my favorite directors, probably is my favorite director, you know, if I had to really narrow it down, just because he's so masterful at storytelling and his musical prowess, you know, Halloween, even, you know, Starman, you know, Dark Star, you know, all these movies where he did the soundtrack, you know, he knows what he's going for. He knows what kind of story to tell, and he knows the ambiance to put on the screen when it comes to that that theme music. He's just, 
you know, we're, we're here to celebrate his, his, his work for a reason. And I think uh, as a musician, he's just as good as a musician as he is a director. And I can actually boast and brag a little bit that um, actually about a month before I had my uh, first heart attack, we saw him live at the Aragon Ballroom. Patty and I did uh, doing a show with his band with his son. And I'm telling you, that was one of the, it had the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Oh. It was an amazing experience. Oh, that'd but, be amazing. Yeah, to see him yeah. live. <laughs> I, I would hope that, you know, once uh, COVID is under control, that he will make another tour because I will plunk down my hard-earned money to see that again and again and again. <laughs> Just follow him around instead of like a deadhead, you're like a John Carpenter head. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Hey, there's worse things in the world to be, right? <laughs> Creed. Now, I'm not sure if uh, you have anything new to promote since the last time we spoke when we did um, Season of the Witch, but if you do have anything you want to uh, plug real quick before we go tonight. Um, actually, I, I am at, at this current time just still rocking and rolling. Um, you know, I'm still trying to finish up the project that I can't name yet, which is sad um, <laughs> that I can't say what it is. Super excited about it. Um, but uh, and then, of course, finishing the fucked anthology and uh, all the women who have been a part of that have been just really amazing. Um, as you can imagine, there's just been. Lots of setbacks, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're, they're powering through and staying enthusiastic about it, which is, you know, awesome. Um, and yeah, just trying to keep busy and, uh, you know, I think it, it's so easy to get disillusioned anyway in the filmmaking world and it's even easier during this time. <laughs> and oh yeah, I, I just think that it's, it's important to still dream and it's important to still plan ahead for your personal projects because it's like, yeah, we don't really know like what the world's going to be like, but you know, you have to have like a reason to get up in the morning, you know? And it's like, you have to keep going on and you have to still be flexible, but still like plan for the things that you want to do. I agree. I agree. I'm doing the same, trying to keep busy podcasting, writing, uh, filming when and wherever I can, when I can, you know, there's uh, there's something to be said about trying to keep the dream alive when everything seems to be trying to, to squash that dream. But but good for you, good for uh, all of us trying to keep the, that dream alive, and even when the dream seems to be somewhat of a nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, people like us are used to nightmares anyway, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I thrive on nightmare fuel. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, once again, folks, you have been listening uh, to Cinema Degenerations, John Carpenter Appreciation Month. Thank you for joining me, your host, Cameron Scott, and this has been my co-host, Jesse Seitz. Thanks again, Jesse, for uh, joining me on this. I really appreciate it. It's always a fun time uh, getting into these movies and get, having a deep dive discussion with you. I, I, I appreciate the banter. Oh, thank you so much. It's always fun to be on here. Movies happen to be my favorite thing. <laughs> yep, me too, me too. Well, folks, thank you once again for listening, and keep tuning in. Hi, mateys. This is KAB Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here, beaming a signal across the sea. To the men of the seagrass, 15 miles out tonight, a warm hello. And keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. 
Yeah. 